I'll be reading from 1 John 4, 7-12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Over the past three weeks, we've been just looking at how the Christian exists in these kind of crazy election times. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how uh, the Christian is to um, look to God, to not trust, out of Psalm 146, to not trust in princes or people or, or presidents, but we are to sink our hope in God, to seek our help from God. And, and we saw in 146 uh, that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, of the sea and everything in them. So he's, he is full of great power. And yet at the same time, we read in that beautiful psalm how he brings justice to the oppressed, how he, how he feeds the hungry, he gives sight to the blind, he frees the prisoner, he lifts up the downcast, he, he watches over the sojourner, and he even upholds the, the widow and the fatherless. So, so we, don't, we don't trust, we understand the role of government, but we don't trust in the government. We trust in God. And then last week we learned about how the Christian relates to the world in these times. You know, that, that, that God has ordained the government and that the Christian out of First Peter is to obey the government, is to walk in, in line with the government. And that the Christian is not to hold up and separate, but to seek the good of society, that we want to seek the benefit of society so that those opposed to the faith will see our good deeds and praise our Father who is in heaven. And then we're also called to maintain relationships as citizens, both of heaven but citizens of this earth, that we treat people with honor and respect because everybody bears the image of God, even though they may be vastly different from you. Well, this week we're looking at how the Christian relates to one another in these turbulent times. You know, the culture is growing unsympathetic to the gospel. And so how we treat each other is incredibly important. And, And it's interesting, again, it doesn't speak... Uh, about, you know, the threats and we've got to build walls or we've got to separate ourselves. John gives very simple instructions. Love one another. Love one another. This is the third time in this letter that he has told us to love one another. It's not that we forget quickly. He just understands that while we cognitively understand it, it is really a challenge to practice it. And so he repeats it. He's not just saying hold firmly to the faith, but he's also saying lovingly walk out the faith. Now, Jerome, he was a church father in the early 4th century. He was a church leader. And he wrote a commentary on the book of Galatians. And in this commentary, he spoke of John the Apostle who wrote this letter. And what he said was this, that when John was aged, 
And he was being carried to the church at Ephesus. And he could hardly speak at this point in his life. He would repeat every time, Dear children, let us love one another. Well, at one point, one of his disciples asked, Why do you keep saying the same thing? And he said this, he said, It's because the Lord commanded it. And if only you do this, you've done enough. If only you've done this, you've done enough. To love one another is fundamental to the Christian faith. That's what we're going to see here. I I don't want to just call you to love one another. But John gives us multiple reasons why we ought to love one another. And he gives us reasons as to how we can love one another. And so that's what I want to look at today, just to kind of get your minds on how do we love each other? Why should we love each other? And the first reason I think you see in the text is that the Christian can love because God is love. Because God's love. Look with me in the seventh verse for just a minute. Notice how John begins, beloved. That's a word that if anybody says it, they're from this 18th century. We don't say that word anymore. But it's a word that is heavy laden with affection, beloved. It's the same word that God used of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So what John's doing here, he's not commanding us to love one another out of some sterile rule book, but he is affectionate towards us. He wants us to, he's saying, beloved, you who I love, love one another. Love one another. But but he doesn't give us this, this freedom to define love as we may want. Because he says, love is from God. This is where this love comes from. In fact, the word means, you know, in today's use of love, it's a pretty, pretty thin word now. Uh, It can mean anything. It can mean warm feelings around the holidays. It can mean just the hair kind of raises up on your arm. It can mean a lot of things. It can be applied to your spouse. It can be applied to a type of chocolate. You can love a lot of different things. But, but when you look at the word and the context of it coming from God, this love has a sacrificial weight to it. It has an intentional. It has a willful. It has an other person-centered. So, so to love one another... It's going to be marked by sacrifice, intentionality, will, and without expectation of any sort of return. That's a unique love, I think you will admit. It's a very unique love. And this love is from God. In fact, he says God is love. It's his nature. You know, it's, it's the nature of a fire to put out heat. It's the nature of the sun to cast out light. It's in the nature of God to love. So, so think about it. Everything God does is loving. If, if he saves, he saves in love. If he disciplines, he disciplines in love. If he judges, he judges even that in love. If he serves, he serves in love. It's part of his nature. So when he calls us, love one another, all of a sudden you look and you feel like there's, a, there's just the highest mountain. I can never do it. You wonder, how can I follow John's instruction when you think of this kind of love? We're to love like God for one another. Well, notice what he says in the second half of 7. He says, anyone who loves has been born of God. In other words, the only way to love like God is to be born of God. 
You can't love like God unless you have been reborn with the nature of God. This is what we mean by being born again. Being born again is when you, you place your faith in Jesus Christ. He takes out a heart of stone. He puts in a heart of flesh. He puts in a heart, a will that is desirous of moving towards God. He gives us a new nature. This is what Peter says in his second letter. We've become partakers of his divine nature. So God gives us the nature. So that just like it's in the nature of a dog to bark and a, and a duck to quack, the Christian moves and feels the impulse to move with this kind of love. So, so in a way, this love for the Christian is inevitable. But it's not automatic. There's a distinction there. It's inevitable that if you've been given God's nature, you will love like God. But it's not automatic. In other words, you're not carried along a stream as if you're doing nothing. That You as the Christian are called to involve yourself. By faith, you're going to move with sacrificial intent for the glory of God to love one another. That's the motivation of our love. That it's not automatic. We are engaged. You know, Augustine, another church father, the fourth century, he says, command what you will, but give what you command. Command what you will, but give what you command. God has given us, he's commanded us to love. But he's given us a nature to love. And then there's another thing I would say about this first point that Christians can love because God is love. Not only is it inevitable, but it's not automatic. It's the way that God assures us that we have been born again. In other words, some of you may be thinking, I, I really struggle with this. You know, you're inhibited, perhaps, or you've been hurt in the past, or you get wounded easy. Or you don't like to be around difficult people. Don't know that you'd be alone in that. But you don't like to be, and, and you want to take a pass on this. You don't want to feel this kind of conviction that you need to love one another. But it's interesting that God seems to remove the ground of our argument. Because he's given us his nature we ought to love. But it's in the loving that we begin to see God is doing a work in us. In other words, when I sacrifice myself, when you give of yourself in sacrificial ways, when you bear with one another, when you forgive one another, when you speak well of one another, when you encourage one another, and you're doing these things with people that may be naturally difficult, you are revealing to yourself that God has given you new life. It's evidence, it's assurance that you've been born of God because you can't do this on your own. In fact, notice in verse 8, there's kind of a warning here. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Anyone who does not love. John Stott, a theologian of our times, he died about... 15, 16 years ago, but he, he wrote these words. He says, For the loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak, or to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. It is to fail to manifest the nature of him whom we claim as our father. I don't think John is condemning us here. I, I think he is 
giving us a distinguishing mark to discern, have we been born of God? I, I think he's trying to alert us to maybe inconsistencies in our life that we are called to repent of and to seek God for grace. So right now, if you're feeling, because if you're feeling, well, I'm really not that loving towards people, and you're beginning to wonder, have I really been born of God? I don't think he's trying to undermine. I just think he's trying to cut through some of our tendencies towards self-deception. You know, I encourage people, don't trust everything you think about yourself. We tend to give ourselves passing grades rather quickly. And I think there's a, there's a part of the Christian life where we want to look at our lives with a degree of introspection, not over-introspection, but a degree of introspection where we say, do I see this kind of supernatural love in my life? Do I see it? Where has it been? In the last week, where have you unilaterally moved towards a person, unlike you, that couldn't return your love, and have you loved them? Uh, where in the last week, perhaps start your marriage, where you've, you've really moved with love towards your spouse, perhaps even in a time that you were at odds with each other, or, or your children, or, or somebody even outside your family, someone in the church here. What, what is the evidence of that supernatural love that would be birthed from a nature that is divine, that God has given to you? Now, don't, the first step, if you're a Christian here, the first step is not to drop your head in shame. No, the first step is to run to a road that's been well paved and it's been used often. Run to God and seek his forgiveness. Repent. God, I, I haven't been loving. Would you give me more grace that I might be loving? For the Christian, and the older you get, I think the more we repent because the more we're aware of our brokenness. But for the Christian, repentance is one of God's greatest gifts to us. Because he's always, he's faithful and just to forgive us as we confess our sins. So, so rejoice with me if you're a Christian. Rejoice with me that we can, even now as I'm preaching, we can say, God, forgive me. I'm feeling the conviction of your spirit. And if you're not a Christian, you may be saying, well, does this mean that only the Christian can love? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying this that only the one born of God can love like God. I, I mean, humans love, no doubt. But, but the nature of human love is more driven by natural affections, by sexual interests, by mutual interests. We tend to give love to those that we love. We tend to give love to those that benefit us. We tend to give love to those who care for us. I mean, we give love to those that we deem worthy or that we deem needy. There's a real human feel to it. Is this the nature of your love? Do you see marks of supernatural grace in that love? If you don't, this is why we need to be born again. In fact, this is what John writes in the chapter previous to the one we're reading. He says, and this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, to believe in his name, to place your faith solely on Christ. And then it says, and to love one another as he commanded us. You see, the reason the two are in such close proximity is that belief in Christ brings a new nature which allows you to love. So if you're not a Christian here and you're convicted by the lack of love, that's why. 
Love will be always of a human orientation until one is born again. And to be born again is simply to say, is to see our sins before God, we're at enmity with God, and to repent and to ask for grace. God save me, God deliver me. That's the first point. Christians can love because God is love. But look with me at 9 and 10, because Christians can love because God has sent his son for us. Look what it says in in verse 9. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son. So God has given us, he's not just calling us to love, but he's giving us a visual sign. He says, in this, God was made manifest. God's love was made manifest among us. Now, to make manifest means to reveal that in the sending, your mind should be going to the incarnation in verse 9, that God sent his son. That's what we're about to celebrate these four weeks prior to Christmas, that God has sent his son. And, and God has sent his son to reveal God's love to us. Now, God's always loved. He's always loved. We found that because that's his nature. God is love. But it was made manifest in Christ. In other words, it was fully revealed in Christ. So let's say you go outside and it's a cloudy day, and then the clouds part, and you see the sun. Oh, the sun's come out. Well, the sun's always been there. You just didn't see it in its fullness. God's love has always been there, but in the incarnation, it was manifest fully for us so that we could see him. But of course, Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 19th century, He says, the question is, for what purpose did he send the Son? That is probably the most important question you will ever ask. For what purpose did he send his Son? Well, thankfully, John tells us here in this next verse. In verse 10, he says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation, God sent Jesus. The purpose is to be a propitiation. What in the world does that mean? You know, normally I don't like to use those words because they tend to be, you know, anything more than two syllables I can get a little twisted on. And that's a very big word. But it's a theological term and it's a word that the Bible uses. We want to understand it. I wouldn't break it out around the Thanksgiving table this week, but, but it's a word we need to understand. And what it means is, That Jesus came as one to bear the wrath of God for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. So Jesus has come to bear this wrath of God that we might receive the forgiveness of God. Jesus came to bear the righteous justice of God so that we might receive the mercy of God. Jesus came to bear the curse of God for our sins, that we might receive the blessing of God. Jesus Christ has come as our substitute. This is the greatest demonstration of love you will ever have, you'll ever get. There's nothing greater than God sending his own divine son in the flesh to be rejected, mocked, disbelieved, killed, for us. John says it again in chapter 3. He says, <clears throat> But you know that he appeared, or made manifest, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away sins. And in him there is no sin. So the one who was sinless became sin that we might become sinless. 
That's why he came. That we might be righteous, innocent, forgiven by God. That's what John the Baptist said when he saw in chapter 1. He says, behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. That's the greatest demonstration of love. Do you feel the measure of that love? I mean, and particularly if you're a parent, the way you feel about your children. God sends his son, the sinless one, to take the sins of the sinners to make them sinless. I don't want you just to be overwhelmed by the measure of his love. Look at the motivation of his love. Look where he says, he says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. In other words, the motivation of God is love because his nature is love. Listen, you'll hear many modern theologians say that God sent Jesus because we are lovable. Or that God sent Jesus because we are have great potential. Or that God sent Jesus because we were so worthy. That's not what it says. It says it is not that we loved him. We didn't love him. We were rebellious at enmity with God or just flat out ignoring him. Maybe you didn't have some hard feelings towards God, but every single human being wants to be God. So a God on the scene of a person who wants to be God, you're going to have conflict. And it says not that we loved but that he loved us. It was the initiating love of God that sent Christ to save us. Paul says the same thing, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So do you feel the weight of this? I mean, do you see the profound nature of the gospel? Sometimes I think we in Christian circles can tend to shrink the gospel down. With some of our expressions, I think we're well intended with them. You know, Christianity, I, I ask Jesus in my heart, or, you know, I do go to church and I have a ministry, <clears throat> or, uh, you know, that, that Jesus has, I'm going to go to heaven now that I believe in Jesus. All that's true. It's all true, and, and it may all be good. But what this event is, is it's cosmic redemption. So go all the way back with me to Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in it. It's all good. He creates man and woman. It's a beautiful thing. And then, of course, man, the first opportunity we have to turn against God, rebel against, boom, we do. We rebel against God. And, of course, separation comes in. We're separated from God. God's not satisfied with that. God makes a promise early in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he's going to send a son, and this son is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to crush rebellion in its entirety. And then you see the story, just get, rebellion continues to increase. You have the flood. Right? He destroys it. Did he snuff out the rebellion of men and women? No. You see the Tower of Babel come right after that. And then God finally moves. He moves towards Abraham and says, I'm going to start a people. I'm going to, I'm going to bring about a people. Because through this people who kept failing through the history of Old Testament, through this people will come one, my own son, who will live for my glory as you should have. And not only will he do everything he needs to do to save you, he will do everything to take away that which damns you. It's cosmic redemption. God has sent a son not just to save us from our sins, but to save God's all of his creation over which he will reign supreme as king so that we will enjoy God forever and ever. That's what he's come to do. 
It's colossal. It's cosmic. It's an unbelievable statement of great love to sweep us up in this cosmic redemption that we would enjoy God forever. That's what He's come to do. And this is the motivation that He gives us to love one another. To love one another because I've so loved you. I hope this is the drive with which you want to love others. Many of us, I think, you hear this command, and we may feel guilty, and yet we need to do this, we need to do this. And much of our motivation is born out of fear, not out of the favor that God has already extended to us. In fact, there was a professor at a Midwestern seminary, and he he gave his class this essay. And the essay was this question. What has shaped your life most? Has it been the fear of breaking God's law or has it been the amazement over God's great love? 90% of the papers said it was the fear of God's wrath and the fear of displeasing God. And when he brought the papers together, he spoke to the class and he said, it is to be primarily fear has a role but it's primarily the wonderment over God's great love that is to motivate us to walk by faith. You could hear a pin drop, he says. And people came up and said that's the first time they had heard such good news. But that's the gospel. In fact, he went on to say their reflex was to please God so that he would continue to favor them. They had not learned to please God because he had already favored them. This is the motivation for us. The motivation to to move toward one another in love. And I think we know this. I I think intuitively you know this. So if you remember, if if you don't remember, you're probably not old enough, but in January of 82, I was finishing up at the University of Maryland And that was when uh, the Air Florida plane uh, took off out of Washington National, now Reagan National, I guess, and uh, wings were iced. It only lasted 30 seconds in the air. It came down on the 14th Street Bridge, plunged into the Potomac. Many people died on the bridge, and I believe about 78 died uh, on impact. But there were six who survived. And if you remember the scene, because there are helicopters flying around, they were in the water, and there was this one man, uh, I think it was Alan Williams was his name, and uh, he was in there, and I remember seeing this, because I was, I was right outside of D.C., that's where Maryland is, University of Maryland, and, and, and they, they, the helicopter had lines that they're trying to drag people to the shore, and, and, and Washington was in major gridlock, so they couldn't get any emergency vehicles there quickly at all. And this one man kept giving people the line, and he was staying in the water. And I remember sitting, he's going to freeze to death. It was, it was in the middle of winter, the waters were freezing, snow was on the sides of the bank, and he kept giving people the rope that they would be saved. And he ended up uh, drowning. They survived, he didn't. It was profound active heroism. It's hard to see that and go out, I'm going to now be selfish to you. It's hard to, to go out now, after seeing that act, it, it just softens you to people. 
It, it moves you with grace. You kind of saw the same thing at 9-11. When people were pouring out of the towers and those fire personnel were running into the towers, you know, it was a nice place for a few weeks after that. If people were just nicer. That's the, but now you take it and apply it to the gospel. And God has done this. And, and this is what Christ has done for us. As we cherish the gospel, as we think about the gospel, our hearts are warm that we want to love people who may be unlovable. Even in my own life, personally, when there's a scene in my life when I can serve Carol or serve somebody or serve myself, my default, just to be straight up with you, is to serve myself. And and when, by God's grace, my mind moves to the gospel and I think what he's done for me, I feel this grace upon me that moves me to want to serve now that is not that is not in accordance with my nature or my nature that's being transformed but 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 it moves me to want to serve that's the power of the gospel so we can love because he has sent his son for us and then the third point i want to make so first you can love Because God is love and he's given you a new nature. Secondly, you can love because he sent his son to be a propitiation for your sins. There will never be a greater act of love. And then thirdly, you can love and you ought to love because it gives you an opportunity to display the greatness of God. Uh, Let me explain that. Look with me in 11 and 12. In 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now notice what he says in 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Notice in 12, no one has ever seen God. God is invisible. God is spirit. He says, no one has seen God. But if we love, he dwells within us, and he perfects our love, and he displays himself through us. God, the invisible God, is made visible as we love one another. it's, It's somewhat analogous to the wind. The wind is invisible, but you see the wind in a way. When you see the trees bend and the leaves blow like yesterday, you see clearly it's windy. Why? Because the effects of the wind. Well, when, when we are loving one another in sacrificial ways, then people are going to see the grace of God. We display God in the way that we love one another. So let me give you some practical examples of what this might look like. Remember now, so one author said, the church is the laboratory of God's love. We're the laboratory. We are where it is baked and where it's displayed. So let me give you some practical examples. Um, keeping short accounts with one another. In other words, being quick to forgive those who have offended you. T- to avoid harboring bitterness and longstanding disagreement. Take this to your marriage. Take this to your relationships. Take this to, take this to the relationships in this church. That we, as we forgive, we display God as a God who forgives. That that as we forgive people quickly and thoroughly, then we are showing one another God is a forgiving God. If we don't forgive, then what does that display about God? If we harbor bitterness, if we stay angry over past hurts, if we allow things to get under our crawl and we just do the avoidance method rather than the reconciliation method, what are we testifying about God? Is he not forgiving to us? Or, or not just keep short accounts. How about, how about uh, speaking well of one another? Avoiding criticisms 
or avoiding speaking ill of another person. We display God as kind and gracious as we speak with kindness and grace of one another. When we're backbiting and devouring one another, as Paul warns us in Galatians 5, what does that show about God? So, so what does God say about me when I leave the room? You know, if, if we nail people when they're not there, but other what does that say about God? How does that display God? It doesn't. But if we speak kindly to one another, seeking to give the benefit of the doubt, speaking in a way that's humble and gracious, then people begin to think, I think God's humble and gracious. You won't see this through nature. There is much we learn about God through nature. You won't see his forgiveness through nature. You won't necessarily see his kindness in the way that I'm speaking about it. Or another one would be to bear with one another. That we display the patience of God as we are patient with one another. Now listen, we all have foibles and idiosyncrasies and tics that bug us. Every one of you in your minds right now, you and me included, have people that, you know what, they just have a certain style that perhaps is a shade bit off-putting. It may not be a sin. It may just be, I don't know, a way of saying things or a way of behaving or whatever. And, and we, tend to, we tend to find it a bit off-putting, which then moves us away from ever wanting to express love for them. But if we move with patience, bearing with them, then we display God as a patient God. And don't we need a patient God? I want to have a patient God because I need his patience. We're accepting one another. We're a church that's big enough to be quite diverse. We raise our kids differently. We educate our kids differently. We discipline our kids differently. We have different political views in this church. We have different ideas of what it means to be a good steward. We have different forms of entertainment that we watch. We are quite different one from another. But, but as we accept and as we move across those lines of differences with love and, and um, encouragement, what we're doing is we're displaying God as one who accepts people different from us. That's what Paul says in Romans 14. Accept one another, he says, just as Christ has accepted you for the glory of God. The last thing we want is a church that we all look the same, we all dress the same, we all talk the same, we all use the same lingo. That doesn't display the variety that God is seeking to do in his kingdom. We're, we're a new people. We're a new community. And then also persevering with one another, you know, building each other up, seeking the spiritual good. As we pursue each other, we are displaying God as faithful to persevering with us. As I continue over the years and the leadership of this church and you one to the other, as you keep pursuing each other, I, what can I do to prepare Joe to see Jesus Christ? How can I invest myself in Bill's life to further him so that when he sees Christ, he's going to be thankful for me in his life. It displays God as perseveringly faithful. And then last, I would say, just, just get practical. You know, how do you love one another? Well, do acts of charity, material acts of charity. It may be financial. It may be using your gifts. Maybe you're a carpenter, you're a computer, you're an attorney, you're an accountant. Whatever gifts you have, that you're using them for the benefits of other people. But I want it to be costly. I want it to be sacrificial. And the reason I say that is because it displays the gospel, because that was costly and sacrificial. And, and you know, John, earlier in chapter 3, I should have just preached chapter 3, I think. In chapter 3, he says, this is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. That's the call, that there's that sacrificial. Is there anybody in the next two weeks that you can move in a unilateral way without expectation of return in a costly manner to serve them. It might be reconciling conflict. It may be widening the circle of your friends and drawing them into lunch or to dinner just to encourage them. It may be seeking their spiritual good. It may be engaging with a person in a discipleship relationship. I am going to go to this person. So in your mind you can say, I'm going to go to this person and I'm going to ask them if they want to read the scriptures with me. I want to ask them if they want to study this book of the Bible with me. Or perhaps you know someone that's fallen on hard times and you just stick 200 bucks in an envelope and you don't put your name in it and you get it to one of the leadership of the church. We get it to them and we say, hey, you know what? Somebody just wanted to encourage you. You know, something along those lines that we can act in practical ways. Because when we do this, we display God. And we're going to display God to each other. We in this church will be impacted because I will see the grace of God in your life and it will remind me of the reality of God working among his people. But it doesn't just benefit us in this church. It benefits those outside. Outside, when the world sees us behaving this way, it's incredible. I cannot overstate to you the importance of if we don't practice this, we give the watching world a reason to dismiss and deny the gospel. We can promote the truth verbally all day, but if we don't incarnate the truth, it's a hard hard thing to sell. We can preach it, but if we don't practice it, the Achilles heel to the church is hypocrisy. It's, It's preaching this and practicing this. Think about, just start for a second, in your marriages how they often can display a non-truth about the gospel. Or think about your relationships in this church. It's the Achilles heel of the church. Now, when someone says, well, the church is full of hypocrites, of course, you know the standard line is, well, come join us, you'll feel right at home. But before you go there, you want to consider where might you be hypocritical and confess that and recognize that the church is the greatest apologetic to the gospel. That's what Francis Schaeffer would say. That we're the line of defense. And Jesus did say this. Here's what he says in John 13. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. So the testimony to the power of the gospel is seen in us, his laboratory. We're the ones displaying God to the world. So, he calls us. How do we live in this furious climate that we're living in? I'm not worried about it. I'm concerned most that we love one another here. And if we love one another because God is love, we love one another because he sent his son for us, we love one another as an opportunity to display God's glory, we'll be just fine. So let's take a minute now and just quietly confess. And what I'd like you to do maybe is, is think about how you may have being, you've been loved less and, and how might God move on you with convicting grace-filled power to change you. Or perhaps you've seen God move in you lately. Then thank him for it. 
I, I don't want you to leave with your, if you're a Christian, I don't want you to leave with your heads hanging. I want you to leave just walking that road of repentance and then knowing that he is faithful and just to cleanse you from all sin. If you're not a Christian here, I would just ask you to look at the nature of your love. Take these minutes and just consider the motivations. And, and you come and tell me if you don't find that they don't circle back toward you. Because our love is generally motivated for ourselves, And maybe ask God to reveal himself to you in greater measure. And then um, Larry, uh, our elder, is going to pray for us. Thank you.